<clears throat> uh, not the usual reception of Christian apologetics in the United Kingdom. <clears throat> uh, I told Tony in a moment of gracelessness that, Tony, you didn't even start with anything funny, so, okay. <clears throat> Well, this afternoon, I know it's postprandial, as they say. Uh, I know you've eaten, but uh, the topic given me is the practice of personal evangelism. This morning, I spoke about a theology of evangelism. Let me remind you briefly what I said this morning. And if that seemed very dense, um, I'm not apologetic. You have an hour, a theology of evangelism. You're going to have to say a lot in a very short amount of time. But it is such a privilege to be here to finally get to meet Ravi Zacharias, who I've heard about for so long. But remember that a theology of evangelism, at least according to me, answers five questions. It would be nice if you could remember at least those five questions. That would be good. The first was, what is to be told? What story is to be told? And I suggested that we needed today to do some repair and some improvement upon what 19th and 20th century evangelicalism had bequeathed to us, true as it was, and that we needed to perhaps in our day, in our postmodern day, with the particular monsters that some of our friends face, we needed to talk about the gospel of the kingdom, creation, fall, redemption. I always intrude judgment and then consummation. That we want to show the effects of sin are not just personal guilt, but also guilt and corruption, the frustration of the entire cosmos, the breaking of every kind of relationship. That, uh, that this can repair and correct the Gnosticism that I think that some of our gospel presentations have been given to, the notion that Christianity really just boils down to mental assent to a set of propositions. And I discussed very briefly how, in my experience, use of something as old and strange as the Apostles' Creed, that this historical rootedness can help us repair and correct the individualism that our presentation can sometimes foster, that we didn't mean to, that it can actually, that the non-Christian hearing the word of Jesus doesn't realize that upon conversion that they're joining a family through history and across culture. And I think that's increasingly something that will be attractive to our uh, neighbors to learn about, but also something that we need to make clear to them. Our second question is, who is to be told? And I said that everyone who is affected by the gospel of the kingdom needs to hear. Everyone who is affected. And that this includes people who already have a different religion from Christianity and those who have no religion. And it even includes those who are antagonistic to all religion. Three, what place does God have in evangelism? And I do not think that we have to be in agreement on free will and predestination to agree on a basic theology of evangelism. But we do need to understand that God precedes us in the gospel, having done the work for redemption and working in hearts and circumstances. Brothers and sisters, I love good theology, but we need to not go past our headlights sometimes. Our understanding is very, to be honest, limited. We know enough, but we do not know all things. Listen to one of the shortest parables. The Lord Jesus in Mark 4 says this. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. 
Now, from Mark 4, that very brief parable, I would not try to infer a whole strategy of evangelism, but it does emphasize how little we know of the process of belief and growth and conversion. We can talk about it, and we can study it, we can watch it, we can participate, but we are dealing with a mystery here of God's Spirit. And my theological friends just really hate mystery. What is to be the response to the story that we tell? Well, we'll get into that in a little bit, but I would say that, of course, what we're asking for people is to not only know the story, because most of the people in Kansas City already know this story, don't they? Be very rare. Now, they may not have heard the gospel presented meaningfully in a way that they could understand or personally, but they could tell you about Jesus' death, that he supposedly rose three days, and that if you believe in him, you get to go to heaven. Something like that, couldn't they? But it's not just knowing the story, of course. It's also believing it and trusting oneself to it in every way. But now I need to turn to the last question. Who is to tell the story? Who is to tell the story? What do you think I'm going to say? My wife and I were, whatever that was, I'm sure it was great, but I, I couldn't catch it. My wife and I were missionaries in Nepal. And Nepal is the wee country between the gigantic culture of India and China and Tibet. In fact, uh, Global Tectonics tells us that it's still the world's greatest um, fender bender and that the Himalayas are formed right there as India grinds into China and the Himalayas are still growing at a, something like a centimeter a year, which for people is not very fast, but for mountains it's very quick. It was a Hindu kingdom back then. We were there in the 80s. I haven't kept up as well as I should have. And it was not illegal to be a Christian in Nepal, but it was illegal to become a Christian. What we were told was that, well, if you were born a Hindu, the vast majority of people, you needed to remain a Hindu. If you were born a Muslim, you needed to remain a Muslim. If you were born in that very small group that were already Christian, you needed to remain a Christian. Now, there's good reasons and bad reasons for that, but if you know the history of, the, of South Asia and how different religious cultures have brutalized one another, you can understand that there is some reason to tell, now everyone leave each other alone. Of course, Christians aren't allowed to do that, but you can at least see the wisdom behind it. And the Nepali uh, government was actually pretty good in its theology because it was at baptism that the government considered you guilty of believing in Jesus. And what that did was one of the beautiful things about being part of a, you know, it's, it's a um, truism, a cliche that persecution can be good for the Christian church, but I have seen it to be so. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, there's not much nominal Christianity in a church that at the time when communion comes, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever you call it, all of those who are not yet baptized have to leave the room. And you look around at the very small group that has remained and you go, these are the brothers and sisters willing to name that name and to go to prison for it. It makes communion quite a powerful moment. But let me just give you three we stories from that time because I think it'll help us as we think about uh, personal, the practice of personal evangelism, okay? There were different responses to evangelism actually being illegal, okay? What would your response be? Well, one response was that some would not go to Nepal at all because it was seen as too dangerous. Uh, I have some, to be honest, some funny stories of Westerners being persecuted and how embarrassing it was to the Nepalis, but still it was dangerous. 
So some would not go for that reason. Uh, my, my own father called me one day and said, wait, I understand someone has to go, but why does it have to be you? Another response, however, was not to go because, and I have even more respect for this one, because the essential work of evangelism was hindered. Why would you go to a country where they told you that you could not speak of him, you could not proselytize, you could not do evangelism? What is the point? At that time, I was a large animal veterinarian, and the Nepalese would not let you in if you wrote on your visa application, you know, pastor or evangelist or something like that. But if you wrote large animal veterinarian, they really wanted you there. But another response, those are the first two, another response was that of my Dutch boss. And I know that there are Dutch people in the room, so I will hurry on. Okay. <clears throat> but what my Dutch boss would say, I'm from, I gotta tell this at least, I'm from the South, which means that I don't tell you what I actually think, right? And I'm working with a Dutchman, which means that he only tells you what he actually thinks. And it took us about three years to, you know, do the multicultural thing, okay? <clears throat> but what my Dutch boss said to me one day when I was complaining about what I thought was our lack of evangelism, he said, my work is my witness. My work is my witness. In other words, I do everything for God's glory on our farm, absolutely everything, and the Nepalese will see it. I do not have to talk about it. And this is, <clears throat> if I had the opportunity to talk to some of you as individuals, I would imagine that although you may not have stated it as such, that this is probably the strategy and tactics that a lot of you are also using. My work is my witness. I do not need to talk about it. And there is something wonderful about this response, and there is something very, very insufficient. And so I want to do the insufficient first. Doing your work in a righteous way can sometimes bring the approval of people that you work with, but not always. In a sermon just on Sunday, I talked about two um, Hungarian friends that actually lost their work after applying some biblical teaching. They actually became unemployed. So sometimes you'll be um, approved of for doing your work righteously, and sometimes you will not. But in a situation like Nepal, in a situation like Nepal, where everything the missionaries did seemed weird and foreign, it was all, no matter what you did, it was all going to be interpreted as your culture. That's why you show up on time. That's why you don't steal from the, uh, the money box. It's just a cultural thing. Nepalese, when they are sick, would not think of leaving you alone. And so they gather around your bed because, well, he's sick. You don't leave the guy alone. I'm from the South, the United States. When I'm sick, I do not want to see you or anybody, right? So being sick in Nepal, which I was about 20% of the time, was just a nightmare. You know, everybody sitting around my bed wishing me well the whole time. Please, just go away, leave me alone. Well, that's how they felt about everything that we did. I, Gopal, who was my major assistant, uh, one day I found that he had been stealing from the farm all of the money box. It was empty. And so, of course, my Dutch boss asked me to fire Gopal. We gave him another chance, and this was why. I asked Gopal, Gopal, now you know it's wrong to steal. Yes, Dr. Saab. Why did you do it? <clears throat> and he looked at his feet, and he taught me a great lesson. He said, my family, and especially my uncle, is suffering right now, and he's very poor. You, he didn't put it quite as eloquently as this, but he said, you need to know that in, in my view of the world, to have all of this money sitting in a box at my disposal and not to help my uncle is immoral. Whereas, of course, I was thinking what's immoral is to take money that does not belong to you and do this. So we, gave, we had to 
tell Gopal that we were operating along my worldview, but we actually didn't fire him that day. And I hope you can see why. But do you see that that's how different we were culturally? And so my work is my witness just would not be enough. Showing up on time and not stealing from the accounts was just a cultural thing. And I'm here to tell you today that at your office or your school or in your neighborhood and your suburb, by all means, live righteously. That was at least one of the applications from this morning's lecture. By all means, live righteously. But you need to know that in the American suburbs, increasingly, Christianity is just seen as a cultural phenomenon. It's no longer enough. My work is my witness. People will come to Christ because of how honest and kind I am. The second reason my work is my witness is insufficient. No Nepali was able, and no American is able, to make the jump from my being on time or my not stealing from accounts to Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected, that God was in Christ beginning the great restoration of all things, this gospel of the kingdom. It's just too big a jump for them to make. And at your office or at your school or in your neighborhood, no one can go from, my, aren't they a nice person, to Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, that God was in Christ beginning the great restoration of all things. And the strategy of my work is my witness focuses too much on us. I have seen people strung out on this. It can cause its own form of Gnosticism, this division of the spiritual is important and everything else does not matter. Listen to how that happens. Where we think that we work righteously in order to proclaim Jesus. And we forget that the gospel of the kingdom would tell you that we work righteously for God's glory and because the work is important in itself. This church not long ago had a response, had a conference on vocation. And I know the people that were speaking here and so I know that they would talk about the inherent value of the very work that you do. And can you see that Christian theology is not something that you subdivide into all kinds, there's evangelism and then there's vocation and then there's, no, can you see that it is all life lived in union of Christ? There is no Gnosticism whatsoever in our evangelism, in our vocations. Everything is done according to the scriptures and according to God's will. Does this make sense? We do not live to do evangelism. That is not the purpose of our work. And it focuses too much on us in that we think that we have to speak from a place of superiority. I work righteously, whereas you do not. But we always, brothers and sisters, if you could walk away with one line from this lecture, this would be it. We always speak from weakness, one sinner to another. I am only a child of God because I am a converted sinner, right? There is in no way I am better than my neighbor. None. None. I do not deserve the gifts that the Lord Jesus has brought my way. Neither does my friend. We always speak from weakness, one sinner to another, and sometimes we shall find that our non-Christian friend at work works more righteously than we do. And we can make the mistake that we have then nothing to say to them. It's the problem of the happy non-Christian. If you know somebody who does not have the Lord Jesus, but feels their life is all together, do you feel that you have nothing to say to them? That is not true. It's what I call the missionary's second problem. 
You move all around the world, and please, I don't mean this in any racist way. You move all the way around the world to work amongst these poor little benighted brown people. And very quickly you realize that they're as good or better people than you are. All that you have to give them is the message of reconciliation with God. You are, I was not better than the Nepalis at all. I lost every argument with the Nepali I had about marriage and how it should be done, but never had the grace to admit it. So here, of course, is the wonderful thing about my work being my witness, right? It's insufficient, but our words and our behavior are to say precisely the same thing. But we do have to go beyond our righteous behavior and use words. And the issue is not us. We are to, not to dwell upon how different we are from our neighbors. We are to dwell upon how similar we are with them. Disobedient to God and in need of the great restoration to be completed. The issue is not us. We do not have to work very hard at everyone seeing that we are good before we can tell them about Jesus. And if we blow it publicly, which I have, very, you know, public Christian, I have done things that everyone found out about, and I blew it for four years in vet school. I was Mr. Christian, and in my last year, I got in a fist fight right in the middle of the library in front of God and everybody. We can still talk about Jesus, because the issue is not us. The issue is not find Jesus and become like me and have it all together. The issue is I've got the disease, I think you have it also, and it would be so unloving not to tell you about the cure. Charlottesville's health department has a sexually tr transmitted disease clinic one afternoon a week. Can you imagine if one of your friends saw you queuing up in the parking lot on Tuesday afternoon? what that would say. But brothers and sisters, that is how I think we should feel when someone sees us queuing up for communion at church. This is no time for pride. This is no time for I am better than anyone else. I have got the disease and I am coming forward for the medicine. Thank God I have gotten past my shame and my pride and I want to get the cure. My neighbor in Nepal, he lived next door to really kind Christian missionaries for 16 years. But one day he came over to me and he said, you know, if this message is really so important, why have none of you ever come over and told me? St. Francis said, is supposed to have said, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. That's really wonderful. That was this morning's lecture. That's not this afternoon's lecture. Because I am here to tell you, I am sorry, words are necessary. They're not sufficient, they're not everything, but they are necessary. That is my work, is my witness. And if that is how you're going through life, realize that it's insufficient, that it puts you under a kind of strain that you're not meant to bear, and that it's not enough. Here's the next response in Nepal. <clears throat> so it's illegal to do evangelism, uh, but it was not illegal to answer questions. And so a Mennonite friend of mine seemed to waste a lot of time. Because what he would do is that when I was running around trying to kill every roundworm and every buffalo in Nepal, while I was running around, he would spend a lot of time 
sitting in tea shops, getting to know the farmers. And now one thing you don't know is it's almost a daily occurrence in village Nepal to see a group of people carry a body wrapped up down to the river to cremate it because death was very much a part of daily life in village Nepal. And so what my friend would do, and I saw him do this, my friend would turn to the crowd in the tea shop and he would ask, what do you think happens after you die? And of course the place would erupt in explanations. But you can foresee, can't you? Of course, with time, everything settled down and someone would do what? They would ask him, what do you think happens after you die? And now, the Christian Mennonite is just answering a question. And then he could have lots of conversations using words after politely learning a great deal about what his neighbors thought. Because one of the problems in current American evangelism is that I do not think we spend the time trying to find out what other people are thinking what other people are feeling. And I think this is a great principle for us today. We dwell upon how alike we are to our non-Christian neighbors, drinking tea with them. Of course, to be born again is completely different. Brother Ravi is completely right in his stance on the law of non-contradiction, that one is either in Christ or one is not in Christ. But at the same time, I would have us dwell on how alike we are to our non-Christian neighbors, drinking tea, spending time, it is true that pluralism and secularism and all of the rest are great obstacles to Christian belief today. But if I was going to list my first one, it would be that Christians are too busy to know their non-Christian neighbors. That would be my number one. It's not true of everyone. I can understand how it happens. For goodness sakes, I am a pastor of mission and outreach and hardly know any non-Christians. Okay, because the church has absorbed me. We share the difficulties, so we get to know people, and we share the difficulties of being in a world together that is cursed by God and subject to decay and frustration. There is no sorrow or temptation that we do not have in common. We are all trying to cope with all this stuff that none of us asked for in the first place. And so I think it is wise to ask others how they are coping, kind of like my Mennonite friend. How are you coping? Like with death. And if, uh, if I'm right, I think that every human actually has to have hope or they wither. And hope, of course, is the ability to imagine that the future is going to be better than the present. And if I'm right, that means everyone in Kansas City is hoping in something. Now, some of those hopes, any of those hopes, apart from a relationship with the living God through the Lord Jesus, is, of course, insufficient but they are hoping in something. And if you have trouble talking to people about what you share with them, well, you can talk about, you know, I had this guy say that people have to hope in something. What are you hoping in? People may not have even thought of it yet, but they are in something. They may have difficulty answering. Their first three answers may not even be the truth. But it would be wonderful to hear what your neighbor is hoping in. You may learn a great deal by the conversation and you may get to talk about what difference the gospel of Jesus makes. Remember, in the first lecture this morning, I was talking about being sure to be talking to the monster that you're actually facing, not the one that's most common or the one that we want. Here's how Christian apologists, I am one, work all too often. You ask a question and I answer the question that you should have asked, right? Well, that, that is disrespectful of my audience. What did you ask? Let's wrestle with this together. You may get to talk about what difference the gospel of Jesus actually makes, assuming it always does. 
But you may be shocked as you get in these conversations to discover that you are suffering from the Gnosticism yourself and that Jesus currently isn't making any actual difference even though you go to church conferences. I was uh, recently returning from my 30th anniversary with my wife. I took her to Greece because she's a Greek American. I'll be honest with you, <clears throat> there's only one person from my church here. <laughs> I did not want to go back to Trinity Presbyterian Church. Just too much. It was too much. The last person I met in Europe, a little Gujarati man uh, in the second ring of defense at Heathrow Airport. It's a new thing. I didn't expect him. And he was going through my briefcase and he pulled out my Bible. And I said, I'm a pastor. And he put it back in and he goes, oh, I was a nominal Christian in India. I was just going to church, took my Bible, but it made no difference whatsoever. But I've come now to UK and my life has been changed. I'm born, my Hindu wife is born, all my children are born, and then this is what he said. This is a quote. And now the kingdom of God, you know, pastor, has already begun and I'm trying to live every moment for the living God. And <laughs> I was ready to go back and be a missions pastor once more. This is what we're doing it for. It's for that kind of a story, right? And can you hear everything that I've said to you this morning was bound up in that little man's testimony of about three minutes, right? It's already begun, every moment, in every way. And what's he doing? He's searching briefcases all day long in the name of the living God. My work is my witness is not enough. Uh, dwelling upon what we share in common before talking about how we differ. And my last response from Nepal. <clears throat> I lived on the village green in the, uh, at Lamachar. And the village green is where absolutely everything happened. And it's where many, many Australians spent their second night in Nepal. They would come to Kathmandu, kind of do Kathmandu, and then they would take the night bus to Lamachar, and they would uh, pull out their big cameras after, the, uh, after their porters set up their tents. And so they would be taking pictures. And I lived in a very quaint house, and then I always loved the moment where I opened the door and I stepped out, because <coughs> the, the cameras all go down. You know, what the heck are you doing here? <coughs> Spent millions of dollars and I find a Texan, you know, what is... <clears throat> they were always fascinated that I was a veterinarian. Fascinated. Oh, well, we can see these are subsistence farmers. What a great thing to be doing. But when my Australian friends heard that I was a Christian missionary, I was uh, not popular whatsoever. Their admiration for me as a vet and their anger at me as a missionary. Non-Christians are not... Non-Christians are not my enemies, but they may think that I am theirs. In our culture, attempting to evangelize someone can be considered not just intolerant, but immoral. One of the big British newspapers reworked the uh, deadly sins, seven deadly sins, and number one was the attempt to convert someone to your own religious opinion. Number one. Here is what I would say to us in that situation. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, right? And it's talking about not just our individual lives, it's talking about life in communion, life in community as the Christian church. It says that in our worship, that we are, and in what we say and how we treat one another, are you listening? We're to give off the aroma of Christ. There is only one aroma, the aroma of Christ. You can smell it all around the world. But there will always be two reactions to the one aroma. Some people will come in amongst you and go, 
What is that thing? That, that is the thing I have been wanting. I've never smelled it before, but I've always known it was supposed to be here. But there will be other people that smell that and will say, what? That is death. What is that? No way. Now, each one of you in this room expects one of those reactions much more than the other one. And I would tell you that in our day, in this place, in your life, to give off the one aroma and to expect both. I'm such a pessimist, I don't expect anyone to ever believe, right? Others of my friends are so shocked when they're mistreated and that people don't believe, right? But no, no, it is the one aroma, but the two reactions. Words and deeds are both necessary. You may ask questions, dwelling, dwelling upon how we are all in this together. Expect the two reactions, but let them choose which they are going to have. Not like me when I was trying to date my wife and would call her up and go, you wouldn't want to go out with me, which I didn't think you would. No, never mind. <laughs> well, that's how so many of us are about evangelism, just like that. Okay, here's the audience participation portion of this lecture. If I ask you, to whom does God want you to speak about the gospel? I would imagine that a person comes to mind. Who does God want you to speak to about the gospel? Uh, mine is a new, uh, some new neighbors who just moved in a couple of weeks ago. They're both students at the university. They're from Beijing. I'm reasonably confident that the living God would have me cross the street and become their friends for lots of reasons, but at least one of them is to tell them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Since we are following God in this work, go ahead and pray for this person. Pray for that person. Ask for ways to serve and to love them. In some ways, that means that the more unlovable they are, the more advantageous it is. Ask that God's Spirit be at work in them, their circumstances, and in you. There are people, and there would be some in this room, gifted in evangelism, and we are wise when we let them get about their business. I do not consider myself one of these, but I do know that I am placed in some people's lives as perhaps the best person to speak to them. And I usually begin by praying for them. Now it is at this point that John chapter 4 is often misused, all right? It's after Jesus talks to the woman at the well, then he says, He's talking to his disciples. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Now the mistake we can make is that we can think that the fields are always white for harvest if we stopped there. But that is not true because it goes on and he says, for the saying here holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So obviously what it means is that someone had to speak when the fields were not yet white. Our task, brothers and sisters, our task is not to find which fields are white. Our task is to do whichever work we are given, sowing or reaping. And as an evangelist, I am often a bridesmaid and rarely a bride, and that is fine with me. I advocate faithfulness rather than results. 
For my last points on the practice of personal evangelism, let me deal with the role of the church and the role of the individual believer very, very quickly. Very quickly. The role of the church. I told you this morning that one of the reasons I accepted this was I wanted to come and see this congregation because this church and mine are actually already partnering in work in China today. And so we traveled to a city, and it's very rare that the that the Chinese underground church wants Americans actually to come and worship with them because they call it seeing the pandas. You can understand, right? We are, we are a people who love doing things as tourists. And so we like meeting with them. It makes us feel good about ourselves. Hey, when I was with the underground church in China, you know, opening a conversation like that, the Chinese don't want it to be like that. For one thing, it's dangerous for them to let you be with them. But in one of God's tender providences when I was in Shanghai very briefly I was invited because they were baptizing five people I had nothing to do with their conversion but they wanted us to baptize them so five people testified before their baptism in an underground church it's the same group that said the Apostles Creed in China with me and because they're uh, worshiping together in a group of flats of apartments they have they would play worship music on a cassette player very, very quietly, and then they would all hum. But I haven't heard more beautiful worship anywhere I've gone, humming their hymns. They couldn't be overheard by their neighbors. But this is what happened. Each of the five people who testified before they were baptized, I was struck by the role that community had played in each story. Right, this is China. This is the underground church. This is where we love to talk about the Holy Spirit at work. But as I listened to these five people who had just believed in Jesus, they told the usual old story of I started coming along because my wife was a Christian. And then I found that they accepted me right where I was and they cared for me. And over the course of time, the things that were being said penetrated their shells and they believed for themselves, right? Nothing, nothing particularly whiz-bang there. And yet, every conversion is completely whiz-bang, the Holy Spirit. The daily life of you loving people who come in your midst is the usual chosen way, even in China, for the Lord Jesus to meet people. They came and shared life with the church and were accepted and watched the difference the gospel made. Apologetics is important. We have to answer questions. Everything has to fall before the Lord Jesus. The gospel must be shown that it coheres, that it corresponds. But apologetics, not always, but almost always, has actually been through history for the believers. To grow in confidence, and I speak to you as an apologist, so that you have the courage to tell your neighbors that what you're saying is true. A vibrant, loving, worshiping community is a very potent apologetic. In fact, Francis Schaeffer taught that love was the final apologetic. If you do not love your neighbors, please do not tell them about the Lord Jesus. Because you'll be sending a very destructive message. It is a truism today to divide churches into missional and attractional. Missional churches reach out to their community by going to their turf, leaving the gathered community, leaving our building, and meeting our neighbors in the world. Attractional churches have the strategy of if our neighbors come to us, we will welcome them, 
and they will see and hear the gospel. The truth is, of course, that both are needed. <coughs> Personally, very personal, I know that lots of people disagree with me. I'm not particularly interested in being a seeker-friendly church. If by that we mean that we go light on the distinctives of the body of Christ, Bible teaching towards discipleship, worship and sacraments, dis discipline of people not living according to their master's wishes. And at Trinity, my church, we always speak as if unbelievers are with us because thank God they are. So we accommodate but we are not by any chance seeker-friendly. And yet we are an attractional church. Leslie Newbegin, in a very great article called Mission in a Modern City, he sees the church as a sign, an instrument, and a first fruit. The church is a sign in that it is to point people to something beyond their present horizon, but that can give guidance and hope now. See, what I'm hoping for in my congregation is that there be something that is palpable in that aroma of Christ that cannot be explained by economics, sociology, or psychology. And that the non-Christians who come amongst us will go, what is it that these people have in common? Because what the culture is saying about the church now is that you gather together actually out of fear of it and its truths and that you're trying to keep your kids so that they're not pregnant before they're married and that they're off heroin, right? That is what the culture thinks of us, right? If they come amongst us, they must see that that is not true. That is not what binds us together. What binds us together is our union in the Lord Jesus and our love for him and our love for the neighbor. He sees, us at, he sees the church as a sign and then an instrument, not the only one, that God can use for his work of healing. One of the things that happened in that 19th and 20th century evangelicalism that I talked about, the Gnosticism that I was talking about, the rampant individualism I was talking about, <clears throat> is that the church actually got marginalized and all of the real work was done by parachurch organizations. This is actually a trend that I think for apologetic reasons needs to change today. I'll let you in on a secret. I did not want to be clergy. I do not like clergy. I think clergy are like dogs. They're okay alone, but terrible in packs, okay? <laughs> and so, oh, I could go on and on. It's a great story of how God, God wrestled me to the ground and said, you will start identifying yourself with the church. Please, Lord, not that. A little plausible deniability. No, with the church. It is not the only instrument that God can use for the work of healing, liberating, and blessing. Not just the proclaiming of the forgiveness of sins. In his case in Madras, his church helped with the sewage and drinking water. And when people asked, this was my favorite line, what are you doing this for? Are you trying to convert us? Wade in his old day would have said, oh, never even thought of it. But his answer was, <clears throat> of course we are trying to convert you. Do you think we would leave you as you are? Right? I hope this church has that attitude towards all of Kansas City. Of course we are trying. We are doing you good. We are blessing you. If we went out of business, we hope that you would miss us. But the reason we're doing that is, of course, we want you. We do not want to leave you as you are. It's a sign, an instrument, and a first fruit. A place where the men and women can have a real taste now of the joy and freedom that God intends for all. In the gospel of the kingdom... The kingdom has already begun and it is best seen in the new humanity gathered as the Christian church. 
my own story. I did not want to be clergy, plausible deniability, and now I embrace my identity with the church. In fact, one of my colleagues is here this morning and we operate, we do a lot of things because we believe in the gospel of the kingdom. We do a lot of things with the city and with people that are very distant from the Lord Jesus, but they also are trying to rid the world of one other form of injustice or so. But our work, our rule is that when we walk into one of those big secular meetings that we realize self-consciously the church has now arrived, not that we're important, and we try in our conversations with those people in the first paragraph to mention the name of Jesus so that they have to deal with that. We're here together, we're trying to solve this problem. We're doing it because of the Lord Jesus. You're doing it for something else. That's all right. But you, need, but you cannot tell us not to do it because of Jesus. That's our rule, first paragraph. But now our, <clears throat> we're the church and we join with our neighbors to seek justice. I'm very excited about how the attorneys in our congregation and some around us have decided to take on payday loans, that kind of thing. But we do it in obedience to Jesus. But not everyone will come to church. Being attractional is not enough. What is the role for the individual in evangelism? I've got to stop. No, I keep going. <clears throat> what is the role of the individual in evangelism? Because we are not all gifted evangelists, but we are all to love our neighbors. We are all to give account of the hope within us. Americans are busy. But I do think that there's reason we could quantify it, that we are also the loneliest people on the planet. Our culture makes real conversation difficult. We pray for our neighbors and for our opportunity to both serve them and to speak for them. Because remember, deeds of love and service and proclaiming the Lord Jesus with our words, those do not have to be seen apart. And in fact, they ought to always be seen together. We have to first cross the street. That means get to know them. My observation is that the largest obstruction to evangelism is not having relationship with non-church folks. But just crossing the street is not enough. We then also have to turn the corner. That is that we have to be able to take, talk to them about important things, the problems and fears that we share together, the hopes that we have, and the ways that we have found to cope. The major one of those being that the Lord Jesus really is the Messiah sent to save us. It snowed in our neighborhood one day. My daughters and I shoveled the sidewalk of an old couple we had not met on our block. This is a true story. Two weeks later, the lady came by and asked if we could help her care at times for her Alzheimer's afflicted husband. Then her daughter wanted to write a newspaper article because such kindness in our city is not known. This is an example of crossing the street. Begin by praying about crossing the street, having people over for hospitality, beginning a relationship. Now, the church that I work at now is a big regional church, not unlike this one. <clears throat> we have recently done the hard work of dividing ourselves into geographical parishes for three purposes, shepherding, fellowship, and mission. Being geographical, I could talk about this at length, is countercultural today, and it's a shift. Mission is doing good and proclaiming Jesus, living, loving our area, learning to see its needs, all the good we do, we do in Jesus' name. But in a fellowship event, they won't come to church. But we recently had a pie baking contest in the city parish. And I met several people that night who did not come to church. And then standing in the pulpit now, I'm starting to see them, right? This is a midwife between the missional and the attractional church. 
people getting to know Christians away from church, right? I'm very excited about it. Let me give you one last story, I think it is. The Gospel of the Kingdom. Recently we began English as a second language for the Hispanic community. And it's a really good program. We, we made it necessary that it be an excellent program. Uh, we learned to cross the street and go into the trailer park and we invited them to come if they were interested in learning English. Currently that program is growing because it does such a good job by word on the street. We don't even go out canvassing anymore. We give them childcare, that's a little bit different. In childcare, we do Bible stories and all of those sorts of things. It's a lot like vacation Bible school. Uh, but this is, this is my favorite story from ESL thus far. One of our ESL students comes very frequently, doesn't have very good English yet, but he works for a gentleman who owns a very big lawn care company in our church. And one day he pushed somebody uh, on, the, on the team. And so the owner of the company called us and said, would we translate as he and his foreman came in to fire this guy, right? Needed to happen. Showed physical abuse that way. <clears throat> but what was really cool was that the person translating, two-thirds of the way into the conversation, turned and looked at the Christian brothers and said, you know, this could, this could turn out differently than you envision. And they started talking. And they started talking about the nobility of all work, even pushing lawnmowers, the whole Christian vocation thing. And then they started talking about culture, and it's true what Ravi said about culture, how, to, how we answer questions differently. And what they needed to know was that in the Mexican town that this guy came from, if you did what the other worker did was get right there and start yelling, well, what you do is you push the guy. And they said, now that can't, that can't work in our culture anymore. So the Mexican brother had needed to learn about that. They gave him one more chance. But what was really cool was that this fellow who's been coming to church to learn English and has been hearing the gospel now has seen reconciliation in a place that he never thought the Christian gospel had anything to do with, which is work relations and a second chance. It's amazing. Now, you never know what the Holy Spirit, which blows like a wind, is going to do. But I am almost willing to bet that that man, having seen that the Christian gospel actually matters at work, is going to think that maybe it matters everywhere else. The church is a sign of the new kingdom. The church is God's instrument in this world. The church is the first fruit of the new humanity as all things are reconciled. Reconciled, even employers and employees. We as individuals have different strengths and personalities, but it is right for us to cross the street. When we cross the street in relationships, we then learn to turn the corner and talk about those things we share with our neighbors in this broken world. This church is going to equip you to know what to say when you want to turn the corner, but it can do nothing until you have learned to cross the street. All of the training and evangelism, whatever technique or notebook, glossy stuff you choose to use and learn, means nothing if you do not have a relationship with that person. As we serve our neighbors because the gospel of the kingdom is larger than just the forgiveness of guilt, we do all things in the name of Jesus. And some of you need to practice the mortification of just breaking the sound barrier and saying his name. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Son of the living God. Nothing more freeing than, than that. We are to serve our neighbor in deeds of love and we are to speak of Jesus. Can you sense how this stops the Gnosticism? 
We are to give off the aroma of Christ, the one aroma, but expecting the two different reactions. Not everyone's going to love you for this, but please. Krishna lived 16 years next to Christian missionaries and had not heard the message. Now why do you, now why, this is to you. Why do you not tell that person that came to mind about the gospel? Really? Why? Well, those are the obstacles that you need to begin praying about whatever comes to mind. You may have opportunity to serve them. Certainly begin a relationship and cross the street. Pray for an opportunity to speak to them about things you share, good and bad. We're all scared to death. The only thing that I think might have been a misconception from Robbie's talk today is that the non-Christian society isn't scared of what's happening also. Everyone in America is terrified about what's happening. We just have different ways we want to approach it, different things we're trying to accomplish, different ways to cope with it. I've been living in Europe for 12 years. I come back and I find, what happened? Everyone I know is so angst-ridden. I'm not used to this. You share that with your non-Christian neighbor. The difference is that you know the cure. That's all. Begin by praying for them. You have an opportunity to serve them. Begin the relationship by crossing the street. Pray for an opportunity to speak to them about things you share, good or bad. Learn to turn the corner, breaking the sound barrier about Jesus. I'm here to tell you it is easier with international students, especially Chinese and Hispanics. The fields are white for harvest in both of those people groups right now. And now, you can help your church become attractional. Always speaking as if the unbeliever is with you. Because when you do that, it really makes room for them to actually come. When you speak as if they're never here, and that if they are, as if they are more evil than you are, they do not come. Always speaking as if the unbeliever is with you, but be a Christian church full of worship. Do not be... Uh, do not be embarrassed at sound teaching and even discipline. I could tell stories about why Islam is taken seriously in UK and the Christian church is not. And it's because the Christian church is not living up to her responsibilities to discipline itself. But help your church also to be missional, creating opportunities to get to know people on their turf and giving them a safe way to begin knowing the community. We're going to have a panel discussion now where you can ask questions of us, but let me pray. Holy God, the only God, the living God, the God of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob and the apostles and the prophets, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sender of the Holy Spirit. I would ask for my friends here as individuals that they would know your love, your incarnate love, and that they would be eager to pass that on to their neighbors, even if they do it poorly. I pray, Father, for this church as a congregation that it will be attractional. I pray also that it would be missional. I pray that people will see that the gospel of Jesus fundamentally changes lives in every way. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have been self-righteous and thought that we were being orthodox. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.